name is Danny. I have the joy of serving as the pastor here at our University Boulevard campus. We're glad you're here. If you're a guest, if this is your church home, we're glad you're here as well. And before we dig into uh, 1 Peter 3, just have one kind of bit of housekeeping for us as a church uh, to take care of. And so church people typically get really tense, right, when you hear that from the pastor. This is not bad. It's actually a really good thing. Um, I just want to encourage us as a campus that as many of you know, when we came through quarantine, it was really hard to kind of regather our Grace Kids uh, volunteers and leaders. It was really hard to regather them and, and to start offering uh, programming for our, our Grace Kids ministry. And so we stood up here on this stage uh, kind of week in, week out for a while, just pleading as a church saying, hey, we really need to rally around this. And I want to encourage you. You have. You really have done that. And we are thankful for it. It's been so cool to hear Mart come into our Monday staff meetings and simply to give reports of, hey, I had two more uh, volunteers who shadowed this week and they're ready to go now. I had one or I had four um, or whatever the number is. And so it's cool to see you stepping up, rising to the occasion, and owning the church. Thank you. So now here's our next step, though. We feel like we, we've regathered well, but now here's our next step, and it's one word, consistent. And so we really need some leaders, some volunteers uh, who want to serve within Grace Kids to be consistent, and meaning that some of us just sign up and say, hey, I, I want to take the first Sunday of every month to volunteer in Grace Kids, or I'll take the second and fourth. So maybe it's serving once a month, maybe it's serving twice a month, or... For you superheroes, maybe it's serving every week, which is awesome. But we need people really more and more to, uh, to say, hey, I'm willing to be consistent in, in volunteering. Some are already are doing that, and we're so grateful, but we need to continue to grow in that. So we've regathered. Now our next step forward is consistently serving. So if you're interested in that, Mart will be in the comments uh, after the service. She would love to talk with you and give you more information about what it means to uh, just be a disciple who makes disciples with the next generation. And that's really how we see our investment into children's ministry through that lens. So there it is, guys. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. I have a question for you. As you're turning to 1 Peter 3, I... I'd love for you to contemplate a question. How would you currently describe the condition of your soul? It's a weighty question, right? But you think about it for a moment. What is the current condition of your soul? So when you walked into this auditorium this morning, would you describe the condition of your soul being weariness? Would you say... I kind of feel like the condition of my soul right now is I'm tired. Maybe the condition of your soul right now is, is numbness spiritually. Maybe the condition of your soul right now is abundant joy. Maybe your answer would be more along the lines of I'm really confused. It's about things in life right now. Maybe the condition of your soul is complex. Maybe it's distracted. Maybe it's broken. 
Maybe it's stuck in a cycle of sin that you feel like just continues to come up in your life. Maybe you'd describe the condition of your soul as being one that, I feel like I'm, I'm living life right now with Jesus. Like this is it's vibrant, it's good. How would you describe the current condition of your soul? And the reason I ask that question is because the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that we're going to dive into here in a moment, Peter is addressing a group of Christians in the first century that probably would have described the condition of their soul being weary, done, tired, exhausted. But he is very intentional this morning in what he says to them to encourage, to support them, and even to challenge them. And so this morning I want to dig into this passage together because I believe this sermon is for all of us. All of us. Because I think we'll be encouraged as they were and also I think we'll be challenged as they were as well. First Peter chapter 3, we're going to start down in verse 13 together. 13 through 17 are really going to give us a, a description of what these weary spiritual exiles, that's what he calls them in the letter, kind of what they were walking through. And then we'll see how he encourages them. Starting in verse 13, he says this. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I want to stop here for a moment because remember, he's writing this letter to Christians in the first century who were pretty young in their faith, but they were scattered throughout five different regions of Asia Minor. He calls them again spiritual exiles. They realize that this earth, this place, is not our home. They were going through a lot of trouble, and you can see already in two verses that they were walking through a lot of opposition for their faith in Jesus. Let's continue to learn about them. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How relevant is that verse to us in 2021? Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Did you get a sense in that passage of the difficulty in which these early believers were walking through. I mean, you think about the culture in which they lived. It was a fast-paced, changing culture in the first century. But it also was a godless society. To be a believer in Christ, you were not in the majority. And I know that is earth-shattering to East Texans. Right? There were not 365 churches in their city. They could not pick a church to go to every day of the year and not visit the same church. Like, this is foreign to us and where we live. Yet I think it's challenging to us. Think about their culture as well. 
these early believers were concerned about the future. What is going to happen to their children? What's going to happen to their children's children? What's going to happen to the next generation? They were concerned about the future. I'm sure they struggled with fear. They were opposed for their faith in Jesus. And I'm sure many of them were absolutely discouraged. And so now Peter is concerned for them. What do you do with this group of believers that follow Jesus and yet they're discouraged and they feel like they're outcasts in the culture in which they live, and rightfully so. And I think he's concerned that they could fall into panic or even fall into despair, which by the way, panic and despair are never from God. God does not send us panic and despair. He sends us grace, he sends us comfort, he sends us truth. So Peter is concerned, how does he encourage them? What does he say to them? So I want you to think about it for a moment. If you were Peter and you were writing this letter right here to a group of believers who were discouraged, they were tired, they were spiritual exiles, what would you say to them? What would you say to them? Would your, your encouragement to them simply be, man, hang in there. Would your encouragement to them be, I don't know what to say, sorry? Sorry that you're feeling this way? Sorry that you're opposed because of your faith in Christ? Would your response be, you know what? God never gives you more than you can handle. I would encourage you to read your Bible, okay? And they probably would have said back to you, I oppose you for saying that statement to me, all right? Like, like it, that would have been tough for them to hear in that moment. So how does he choose, choose to intentionally encourage, challenge them? Look at the next verse. Verse 18 is maybe one of the most concise, deep, profound descriptions of the gospel. Look at verse 18. He says, for Christ also helped me out. Also did what? Suffered. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That we, or excuse me, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So of all the ways that Peter could encourage these believers, these weary believers, what is the direction that he takes? He doesn't say to them, just hang in there. He doesn't say to them, I'm sorry. He even doesn't say to them, God never gives you more than you can handle. He goes right back to the gospel. He takes these believers back to the gospel. And gives them, again, one of the most beautiful, amazing, concise descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. God's redemptive plan to save broken people, sinful people, fallen people, us. To redeem us. To give us life abundantly, now but also for all of eternity Peter takes him back to the gospel, and you notice the first thing he says. He says, for Christ also suffered. 
It's really interesting because when you work your way through this letter from Peter, there is a consistent theme of Christ's suffering. Six times, to be exact, he refers to Christ's suffering. In some ways, he makes it normal for believers to suffer just like Christ suffered as well. But here in verse 18, he actually gives the why, the explanation behind Christ's suffering. So Christ's suffering is not unintentional, but Christ's suffering is highly intentional. It has a goal. It has a purpose. It has a why behind it. And did you notice what Peter said? Christ suffered how many times? Once for our sins. Once. The sufficiency of his death on the cross. He dominated the cross. He dominated the cross. He defeated our sin. He defeated death on the cross. It took him one time. He didn't go back a second time. And then he gets, says, the righteous for the, help me out, the who? Unrighteous. So what is he talking about here? Peter is giving us one of the greatest theological realities for a believer in Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. We'll put a, a definition on the screen for you here. When he says it was the righteous being Jesus for the unrighteous, us, it means that he was proclaiming to us the good news that our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid on us. That is an incredible reality for you as a believer. He took your unrighteousness and he took his righteousness and placed it upon you. And this great exchange, because that's exactly what it is, becomes ours not by works, so not by your good behavior, not by your morality, not by your church attendance, or even your best intentions. He did this by grace alone, his grace. Church, that is imputed righteousness. Or if we condense it down to even a more concise definition, this is imputed righteousness. We'll put it up on the screen for you. I think it's coming. It is our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us. So it's really interesting for me personally that um, in my time, my, my own time, just in the Word over the last week, God kept taking me back to the Old Testament and looking at a couple of passages in the Old Testament that really address how God has dealt with my sin. It was totally unattached from sermon prep for this passage. It was just interesting timing that God would take me back to the Old Testament and he, he said, Danny, I want to teach you more and more about how he has addressed my sin. So not my wife's sin, not my kids' sin, which they're pastor kids, they never sin, right? <laughs> not somebody else's sin, not my enemy's sin. No, like mine, like let's make this personal. Let's have a, some self-reality, self-understanding, self-awareness, Danny. Let's talk about how God has dealt with your sin. So he took me to Psalm 103. It's a famous verse about how God has dealt with my sin, casting it as far as the east is from the west, right? And for the first time, I want to admit this to you, for the first time it hit me that 
If I travel, why didn't, he, why didn't God say from the south to the north in that verse? If you travel from the south and you travel north, you're going to reach a destination to the furthest point north, right? There might be a guy up there with a red suit on and a gray beard. I don't know. Some of you guys are like, we're talking North Pole, by the way, okay? You reach a destination. But if you were to set out and travel west right now, you're not going to reach the West Pole. It sounds simple, right? You will always continue west. You will never reach a destination. So when God says in Psalm 103 that I've cast your sin out as far as the east is from the west, he's saying that I've cast it out infinitely. Think about that. God has dealt with your sin to the point where he has cast it out infinitely. He didn't just kind of put it over to the side. He completely annihilated it. It's gone. And so when Peter, when Peter now addresses these weary spiritual exiles, he brings them back to the gospel and to imputed righteousness. Why? Why? Because he brings them back to him saying, look, the world around you is crumbling. The world around you is unrighteous. You're not righteous because you cleaned your life up on your own. You're righteous because of the gospel. And now, yes, now you stand in the truth of the gospel. You belong to God. He has placed his righteousness upon you. Now you can live here in this world that even opposes the truth of the gospel. But he reminds them of what this whole thing is all about. And I think that they understood their great need for the gospel. I mean, think about it this way. Think about a moment when you have been thirsty, like really thirsty. And you probably turned to somebody and was like, I, I'm going to die if I do not have a drink. You probably were not, okay? Exaggeration. But consider if you were in a desert and you were thirsty as opposed to being in your living room, your apartment, your dorm room, your house, and feeling thirsty. Follow me on this for a moment. How aware are you of your deep need for a drink if you're in the desert and you're thirsty? You're extremely aware of it. You understand the depth of your thirst and your need for water. But if you're sitting in the comfort of your living room, you're sitting in the comfort of your apartment, your dorm room, your house, wherever, and you have your feet propped up and you're looking, you're watching college football on your 72 inch TV, and you're on your plush leather couch. Sorry, college students, you probably don't have a plush leather couch, but all right, one day, one day we'll get there. And you have dim lighting in your room and you're comfortable, and your feet are propped up, and then you think, I'm thirsty. In the midst of your comfort, do you understand the depth of your thirst? No. You understand the reality and the depth of it in the desert, but I fear for us as a church, in the comfort of the Bible Belt, in all the comforts around us in this world, I wonder if we miss our great need 
for spiritual thirst. Spiritual water, living water, otherwise known as the gospel. Do we miss what Peter shared here? Do we miss the greatness of the gospel, the fact that imputed righteousness is a reality in your life? When God looks at you, he sees Jesus and his righteousness. He doesn't see your, your unrighteousness anymore. Do you see your need for righteousness, his righteousness? Peter brings these spiritual exiles back to the truth of the gospel to say, you belong to him, you've been given a righteousness, the world around you is unrighteous. Walk in this in steadfast truth. Be encouraged, believers. He has another way of encouraging them and challenging them. Look at the next two verses, 19 and 20. So he starts out with the truth of the gospel to encourage them. Now he goes to these two verses. Verse 19, in which he, being Jesus, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Making sense so far? Well, look at verse 20, all right? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'll just say it for us. What? <laughs> what did we just read? Like, this, this passage seems like the awkward, distant cousin in the family. Like, we just went through a concise, beautiful description of the gospel. Now he gives us this. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about a prison. He's talking about, we don't even know what. And it's been interesting because when the, when the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, when he commented on these two verses, this was his conclusion here. This is what Martin Luther said about these two verses. A wonderful text this is. A more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. <laughs> so I moved from Martin Luther to John Piper. I was like, well, maybe what does Piper say about this? Piper said these words. I don't know what Peter's talking about. I got five minutes with you guys to break down a passage that Martin Luther says is the most obscure in all the New Testament. And he concludes, I don't know what Peter's talking about. I will say this. As your pastor, I, I know that I'm studied up on this section, prayed up on this section. And what I'm about to share with you is not a hill that I will die on. And I've, I've swam in this section, this passage, and it's still really complex. It's confusing. I will die on the hill of the gospel. What I'm going to recommend to you here, and it really is just my interpretation, not a hill I would die on. Had some fun conversations after the second service. I'm still not 100% sure what Peter does mean here, but I want to give you three common interpretations of these two verses. And then I'm going to give to you what I believe he's saying. 
And I'll leave it open-handed to you. That's, I think that's the best that I can do this morning. Leave it open-handed to you here. So what in the world is, is Peter actually talking about here? So three common interpretations of this passage are the following here. One common interpretation or possible interpretation is simply that this passage refers to Christ preaching through Noah to those who, who lived while Noah was building the ark. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Peter's talking about Christ actually preaching through Noah during the time of, of Noah. A second possible interpretation here is that this passage refers to Old Testament men and women who died and were liberated by Christ. Now here's the key part. Between when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead. So basically between the cross and the empty tomb that Jesus descended and there was activity there and that he went to a prison and that he preached to men and women who had died from the Old Testament and he liberated them. That's one possible interpretation. Another possible interpretation is this. This is very common. This passage refers to Christ's victory and judgment over evil angels from Noah's time. So if you look at number two and number three, both of them would emphasize that, again, between the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus went and proclaimed to either evil angels from Noah's time or Old Testament men and women who had died, and he appeared to them. Now, I would say this. My struggle with those two interpretations would be that there's nowhere else in the scriptures that really promote some kind of activity of Jesus between the cross and the empty tomb. Those are two very common interpretations, and they may not be wrong. However, I don't see a lot of proof in the scriptures for that. The one I would lean upon and I would side with would actually be interpretation number one. Here's what I mean. Interpretation number one is that Christ was preaching, the spirit of Christ preached through Noah. Christ has always existed. He didn't just show up and exist um, when he came here to this earth. Christ has always existed. He's part of the triune God, right? But the spirit of Christ preached through Noah during the time of Noah when he was building the ark. And just think about the story of Noah for a moment. Think about the story of Noah. Think about the world during the story of Noah. In the time of Noah, the world was unrighteous. It was a broken, deeply, deeply broken world. Think about also God's patience that he showed to this deeply broken world during the time of Noah. I think that's oftentimes forgotten about when you study the story of Noah. God was incredibly patient with wayward people. But also think about the judgment during the time of Noah. We know that God's judgment was coming, and his judgment was going to come through the flood. Come through the flood. I always find it really interesting for us that in the church, and rightfully so, like the story of Noah is kind of this cartoon character, animated, all these animals. It's kind of fun. We decorate our baby room with Noah, right? And then there was judgment from God through the flood. 
But also think about the preaching of Noah during that time. Noah, and this is where I think the Spirit of Christ preached through him. Noah was a prophet, right? And Christ preached through him about the coming judgment and pleading with this wayward world to repent, turn to the Lord, find life in God, turn from your sin. But think about the response of the people during the story of Noah. They spurned this proclamation of repentance and turning to the one who is good, who created their life. They spurned that. And so did Christ preach through Noah? Again, not a hill I will die on, but possibly, possibly during that time. Possibly that's what Peter is talking about. And, and here is the point. Is Peter using this example here to remind people in the first century now, years after Noah, that yes, this world around you is broken. There is judgment that is coming. Yes, God is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. He is a just God. And did you notice here at the very end, he references how many people? Eight people during the time of Noah. Noah's family, right? Who actually listened to this proclamation of turning to the Lord. And he describes them, here's the key part, as a few. That's what Peter said. There are only a few I wonder if Peter now is encouraging these early believers of, we realize you're the minority in this world. People are opposing you for your faith. The unrighteous are opposing, opposing you for your faith. Remember the gospel in verse 18. You're the righteousness of God now. And there are only a few of you believers. You're the minority right now. Stand firm. Rest in the truth of the gospel. Don't turn away. Walk with Jesus. Proclaim him to the world around you. And don't lose heart. I'll close with this illustration. Many of you who have been around our church for a while. You know this about me. Um, a pretty significant part of my story happened when I was a senior in high school. My last sem semester of senior year of high school, my father passed away. He passed away from a complex brain illness. But for roughly two months leading up to um, his death, he was in the hospital. And so as you can imagine for our family, I mean, those were really, really hard times, difficult times, painful times, a lot of questions for us as a family. But what really intensified the pain during that time was not just the fact that my dad was sick, but also the fact that for us as a family, uh, we were taking on a lot of um, expenses because of medical bills that were coming in. And so there was a financial burden that my family was dealing with um, at that time as well. And so I remember one day that... Um, and I was struggling, and I just thought, I'm just going to go out to our driveway. I'm going to shoot some hoops and just kind of get out of the house for a moment. And my mom walked out to the driveway, and, and she was just trying to comfort me as a mother would to a son and as a good mom would do so. And so she said, are you, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. 
And she said, do you want to talk about it? And here's the problem. I'm a high school guy. I don't know how to use my words. I can't describe how I'm feeling. Man, you could probably relate to this, right? Like sometimes we have a hard time really describing what's going on internally within us. And then finally, I just sat down with my mom and I said, okay, mom, I want to, I want to come clean. Um, I, I, I see the financial burden right now for our family. And I had only been a believer for about a year and a half. I said, I don't really know what to do, Mom, but I'm going to start to pray. And, and I'm going to pray that God would provide for our family financially. I really didn't know what to do, guys. So that night before going to bed, I was like, well, I guess I need to get on my knees beside my bed and pray. And so I just prayed that God would provide for our family financially. Didn't know what to expect. I go to school the next day. After school, I come home. I walk in, inside our house. My mom greets me and she says, hey, go into the kitchen on the kitchen counter. There's an envelope. So I walk into the kitchen. I see this envelope sitting there on the counter. And I, I, was, I was confident it was my acceptance into Harvard or Yale at that point. Surely, right? And so this, there was no address, um, return address or anything on this envelope. There was no writing. It was completely blank. So I opened up the envelope and there is a, I'll just put it this way, a very significant amount of money in that envelope. I turned to my mom and I said, what is this? And she goes, I don't know. It was in our mailbox today. And she kind of looked at me and she goes, I guess God answered your prayer. Here's not the point of this story. The point is not pray for money tonight and God will provide it for you tomorrow, okay? I don't think that's happened again in my life since that moment. The point of this story is not, Danny, you gave a great prayer. God was so impressed, he gave you some money. That certainly is bad theology. It's not the point. The point's not me. The point, honestly, is not even the envelope or the money. Here's the point. I think God simply in that moment in a very tangible way just said to a family that was weary and that was tired, that was broken, that was suffering, that was beat down. And I think he simply was saying to us as a family, I'm here. I have you. You belong to me. I think he was saying, I'm not going anywhere. I think he was saying, stand firm. Trust me. Walk with me. Be confident that I'm sovereign and I have this. Even as things are difficult, they're painful, they don't make sense. And I just wonder in the same way, through Peter, if God was saying to these early spiritual exiles, remember the gospel. It is the reality in your life now. Stand firm. I'm not going anywhere. You may be only a few of the believers in your own city, but you belong to me. Walk with me. Be a light to your neighbor. Be a light to your city. Proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect. Give a reason for your hope that you have in Christ. 
I had this. And I can't imagine the comfort that would have given these early believers. Not just for them, but the comfort 2,000 years later it gives to us as believers as well. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that in my own life, I'm forgetful. Oftentimes I forget about what this thing is all about, what this life is all about. It's about you. It's about the gospel. It's about what you have done and who you are. Pray you'd help us as a, the family of God, your church, believers, men and women who have been saved by you, Christ. I pray that you'd help us to stand firm, even in weariness. Trust in you, Lord. God, we need you. We need to be reminded. And we want to proclaim truly the excellencies of you, Jesus. Because you are what it's all about. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen.